get away from it, can you? I don't want to bring the tone down here, but but it is, it, you know, it's something that's part of our experiences. And um, if you've been listening to the news this weekend, um, John Hurt, the actor, sadly died, didn't he? And you, maybe you heard that uh, about that on the TV or, or radio or whatever. And it's interesting that the BBC have been playing a really poignant clip. Have you heard the quote from him? Many of us may have heard his words. Certainly it's been on the radio, I guess, on the TV. Uh, It's from a film that he... he, The the last film he was in, I don't even know whether it's out yet, but um, it must be. In the film, he he plays a screenwriter who is uh, facing death. He's terminally ill. And in the screen, he... He, he read, in the film rather, he reads out that Dylan Thomas poem or part of it. You know that one? Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rage at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And have you heard that? Anyone? Is it only me that's heard that on the radio quite a bit over the news? Yeah, a few of us. Radio 4 people, we've heard it. Maybe none of the rest of you have. But um, it, it's really this kind of... Um, it's really poignant because he knew he was kind of dying when he, he, he read that poem. But actually, as people, we do rage against it, don't we? It's outrageous. You know, when, when we lose someone or death comes into our experience, there's this sense deep in us that it's just not right that this should happen. It's especially so when it's, it's just too soon. But, but even when it's about old age after a very long life, we, especially perhaps as, as we're with people who, who are losing something of themselves through dementia or just general infirmity and the memories and the, all that they were and all that they've done. And I, I often chat with our, some of the older members of the fellowship and some of the stories of your lives, you guys, and we'll all be like that. One day I'll be, whenever, how old I'll be, and you will be too. And all, all the things you've done and all the stories you've known and all the people's lives you've been part of are just kind of, well, they're just getting thinner and thinner and beginning to kind of fade. And there's a sense that that's not right. And as human beings, we've always done that. Uh, That's one of the ways they kind of, um, in archaeology, I believe, uh, I may be a little bit out of thing, but generally go with it. Uh, One of the ways they kind of identify the ancient remains of human civilizations is this tendency for, for human beings in community to bury their dead with symbols and with expectation or you know, your animals don't do that, but when you find, you know, a humanoid skeletons that are doing that, you realize this is, this isn't an ape kind of group, this is a human group back in history. See what I mean? So why do we do that? It goes on to the modern day, doesn't it? You know, when, when people have an accident or, you know, I suppose Princess Diana was the, the, the biggest example. You know, that, that we, we want to somehow kind of give it meaning by, you know, cuddly toys are left and, and flowers. And it's, it's, it's nothing wrong with it. It's, but we're trying to say, oh, this isn't right. You know, why is this? What, what's happening here? Something in us kind of thinks, no. Why is this part of human experience? Actually, the poet W.B. Yeats saw it as a uniquely human thing. He wrote a poem, and in it are these lines. He says, Nor dread, nor hope, 
attend a dying animal. A man awaits his end, dreading and hoping all. Yeats thought this was something about the human experience. And and God says in the Bible, he has set eternity in the human heart. That sense that we have that this life just can't, sorry, this life can't be just it. Remember him? Can you see him? Bob Geldof. Anyone know what the title of his autobiography was? Is this it? You know, after he'd achieved all that stuff and with, you know, Band Aid and world changing and etc. They made a few, lot of mistakes with that. But he kind of said, well, is this it? Is that it? We often feel like that. We get this sense of incompleteness. We get this sense that we have the capacity for so much more. We, there's aspects of what we are now that are, are good for now, but they be, you know, are they just for now or is there something else coming? We get that. And, and you know, we can ignore those feelings, which most of the West do, or we can go with those feelings, which uh, other <laughs> cultures in the world do, and be more aware of, of something beyond. You know, we in the West, we're, we're a bit like a fetus. Imagine you could have a conversation with a fetus, a child uh, in, in the womb, and you say to this uh, little chap, hello, <laughs> how are you doing? Do you like it? And, and he says, yeah, I'm fine. It's great. I love it here. He said, I, I've got everything I need. I, I've got this. I've got this thumb. And it's brilliant. I can suck it. And it really makes me feel fine. And you think, and you say, well, wouldn't you like to, to do anything else with it? No, no, it's fine. I'm sure that's all, that's, that's what it's for. Or you say, well, what about those limbs? That you, oh, well, they, I, you know, I love to move and around, around and I don't, it's, it's, it seems like it's getting a bit tight these days, but, but you know, I can kind of move, move around and so on. Or, or, um, you know, and I sometimes hear noises and, you know, there's a, there's a low voice that talks to me and sings to me and a higher one and, and, you know, I don't know what that's about, but it's really great, makes me feel good. So are you looking forward to anything? No, no, I'm fine. No, that's, that's what it, and sometimes we're, we're like that. Because all these things that the feet have got is for something much bigger as well. And, and the, 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 in a sense, we as human beings, we've got this capacity for so much more beyond this life. Eternity in our hearts. There's this sense of um, incompleteness. Or we could think about our passion for justice. That's another thing that makes us cry out for something more, something beyond. I only have to show you one picture of another rock person and you'll know exactly what I mean, I think. Jimmy Savile. Not going to leave that up for much longer. You know, is he ever going to be held accountable? We want him to be, don't we? Why? Where's that come from? That cry for justice. Now, the world where Christianity flourished once it got out of Palestine was very much like our world. People had a vague idea about God, but they weren't particularly into the detail. This is the non-Jewish world now. 
One of Jesus' disciples, John, ended up uh, in that world for much of his life. He was a church leader in that Roman Greek world, way away from the kind of Jewish background that he grew up with. And he wrote a book, a gospel. We've been studying it, and we're going to go back to it next week. So there's a bit of a bridge into what's coming next. He wrote a gospel called John's Gospel because it was by him and he was called John. Not very difficult to get that, is it? And the people he wrote it for were not, in the sense, expecting God to come as king. They weren't looking for a Messiah in the way that the um, the people that, that uh, Luke was writing and others were writing. Although Luke, it's, it's not quite as simple as that because Luke was writing for Gentiles as well. But John's whole approach is to people who are kind of further back in their expectations. They weren't looking for God to come as king. Uh, they, but they were willing and interested to find out about this God and to hear that he has spoken. So John writes his gospel out of the experience he has as a follower of Jesus, probably actually a, a relative of Jesus. And he picks out the bits of Je- Jesus' message that people like that, actually people like us, uh, to help them begin to understand that Jesus has come from God as the Word. So in John chapter 1, as you remember, he, he introduces Jesus as the Word. Uh, and that, that word, Word, was a word that people in that group, that society knew because they often talked about a thing called the Logos or a being called the Logos who would explain God or would, would, would bring God's you know, expression into a culture somehow. And so that's how, so that's how John begins his, his, uh, his, his gospel. And the point he makes is that the creator has come into the world that he made. That, that one is also in John's gospel called the Christ. He's the same person as the Jewish people expected, but he's introduced to us in terms of what he will do as that Christ, that anointed one, that Messiah for people. For people without Jewish background, for people who, who might not know anything about what was coming in terms of, of, you know, a religious kind of feeling, as it were, or understanding. And in that book, John's Gospel, as we saw, you just, if you can remember it, John, uh, has Jesus, uh, he, he, he picks up on a strand of Jesus' message in which Jesus offers eternal life. Jesus said, he would give life to people. He said he would bring light to people. He said, I, I can bring light into the darkness of, of your kind of murky, uncertain world when it comes to knowing about God. You want to know about God? You've got a vague idea. It's a little bit dark and fuzzy and foggy. Well, there's light from God coming. He's come. He's a person. You can find out about him. So if we look at John chapter 1, if you want to just quickly have a look at it. You'll remember it from before. It's on page 1062. The first few verses of John's Gospel are all about this. He says, um, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. And John records many times in his gospel how Jesus explains to people that he came to give life. So turn a few pages to John chapter 3 on page 1065. Again, if you were here a few months ago, you may remember this. 
And on, on verse 13, sorry, 1065, yeah. Uh, verse 13 at the bottom there. Here's a conversation Jesus has with a man. He says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So we see this eternal life Jesus offers that is life instead of judgment. We're going to the kind of very end of time. And our desire for judgment and things to be put right, Jesus is saying we can have life from him instead of perishing or instead of judgment. Jesus is assuming we need that life. And without Jesus, we won't get it. And Jesus keeps on talking through John's gospel, as you may have noticed before, and we'll certainly pick it up from the weeks on into the future about who he is, who Jesus is, and where he's come from. He calls himself the Son, and he calls God the Father. So turn a couple more pages over into John 5. These are all things that may be coming back to you. I don't know if you were here before. John 5, verse 21, on page 1068. Here's one of these typical passages where he talks about the Father and the Son and about where he's come from and who he is. Verse Chapter 5, verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of that, because somebody did earlier on in that series, and we don't have time. I just want to get the big picture here. You see how Jesus promises life there? He said we can come from death to life now. We can have eternal life. If we hear, we believe, we can cross over and see how he connects it with that future judgment, with that future reckoning. And he points out that that is going to happen. These are Jesus' words. He he says there is a judgment that will come. He says we as people are responsible for what we do and we will be held accountable. Now, is that a bit hard to take? 
Well, it's not easy, is it, in some ways? But look at two things. Number one thing, look at your conscience. Think about the things that you've done wrong and how you feel about it. Number two, look at Jimmy Savile. That sense of a time of accountability is coming, and we want it. It's right that there should be. Because if it's right for him, it's right for us, isn't it? How how, There may be differences of degree, but I suspect there's no one here who doesn't feel pretty bad about something I've done sometime. Maybe not as bad as that, but think about it. Now, John, yeah, sorry. Jesus says that if we trust him, we can move from spiritual death to spiritual life, that we won't be judged. How's that fair? Well, it's because God gave his only son. I wish I had more time to explain it, but amazingly, we've been singing all about it. He chose the cross. We're going to do do a little bit of drama about it in a moment or two when we take this bread and we drink this grape juice. It's fair because God gave his son so that we could have eternal life and not be judged. As we look forward to the ultimate future. Now, John, who wrote the gospel, spent his whole life following Jesus. And as an old man, he was exiled for his faith to an island. And he had a vision while he was there. Jesus spoke to him in that vision with a a message for a number of churches that where John had been a leader and many more, actually. And the book he, he was given and he wrote it down into a book. It's called the Book of Revelation in our Bibles. It comes to us as a a particular type of literature, uh, what's called apocalyptic literature. At the time, if you uh, read the book of of Revelation at the time, it would be familiar as a form of of writing. And the the big thing about that kind of literature is highly visual. It's full of symbols and pictures and numbers. And and actually, when we start reading it, as you'll see in a moment, because that's where we're going this morning... Hope that excites you for at least another 10 minutes anyway. And when you go and read it, especially if you've not read it before, it's just, it's just a bit weird, a bit different. But think of it like this. You know, it's a bit like, imagine you've, the only thing you've ever read are newspapers, okay? You love newspapers, tabloids, broadsheets, magazines like The Economist. Yeah, you go to the library, you read the newspapers, not just because it's warm, but because, and it's cheap, and it's, you know, there's internet, but because you love to read newspapers, okay? That's all you've done for your whole life. And then imagine one day, you read a poem. It's different, isn't it? And the way you read the poem, if you read it like a newspaper, you're not going to get that much out of it. And when we come to read literature in the Bible, like Revelation, like Daniel, like parts of Ezekiel, it's a bit like that. We're into a, a, like a different kind of world of symbols and pictures and numbers and weird kind of stuff. We have to look at it in a slightly different kind of way. But don't let that put you off. Let's go there because we're going to think about um, 
I, went, I did that live beyond the judgment. To um, history from Jesus' perspective. That's what the revelation gives us. Another perspective on history. The powers and struggles. How to make sense of evil. And evil's impact on God's people. Because it was written to these churches who were suffering under enormous persecution and pressure. And, and that's why it's so relevant to so, to so many of God's people today. Uh, well, it's relevant to all of God's people. But it has a special kind of cutting edge uh, when you're going through, when evil is just just huge and you just don't know how to cope with it. And it cycles through different aspects. It, it kind of rolls through. But each time, each time the cycle comes round, it brings us a picture of how everything is going to end. And the book begins and it ends and it keeps stating throughout that Jesus is coming back. Something Jesus himself made very clear. Uh, you know, on a number of occasions, he talked, in fact, remember he talked about the day of the Lord, which the Old Testament was talking about God coming and putting everything right. And he changed the name of that to the, the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus made it very clear he was coming back. And Revelation states that frequently. And throughout history, the church has held to that truth because that's what the Bible teaches, that Jesus is coming back and that he is the one who will wind up history. So we see the uh, the end and the beginning. Let's read about what, how it all ends. We're going to read to Revelation 20, verses 11 to 14. That's on page 1249. I, I feel like I should almost give you a health warning about reading this. It's a, a pretty serious passage. But it's God's word, and he doesn't mess about with us then i saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it the earth and heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them and i saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened another book was opened which is the book of life the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and hades that's the place of the dead gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This here is a vision that John has of a picture of, of, of kind of not necessarily exactly what's going to happen, we don't know, but about kind of the processes involved. In a sense, it's the other ends of what Jesus spoke of in John 5 and John 3. It's not an easy passage to read, is it? It's the judgment. There's terror as everyone gets of the ultimate perspective. Everyone who's ever lived is there before this, this terrifying kind of throne. Somebody's on it. And it seems as we read it that there's a judgment about what people have done. And in John's world, it's a picture of books being opened. But but as well as what people have done, there, there's another thing that, that kind of influenced the judgment. And that's this other book called the Book of Life. And people are judged by that too. Now this book, the Book of Life, is mentioned six times in the book of Revelation. 
And once, actually, also Paul mentions it in, in one of the New Testament letters. And twice in Revelation, it's given a fuller uh, title. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And who is the Lamb? Jesus. So it, it, it's about, you know, the book of life to do with Jesus. And I guess the lamb that Jesus is, is the lamb that's been sacrificed, like those lambs in the Old Testament, so people could be forgiven, so God's judgment could pass over them. And so it seems that there's a judgment according to what people have done, but there's also this kind of judgment about whether people are trusting in Jesus. Whether what he's done for them as the lamb has come into their experience. And those who deserve to be judged are forgiven because he is their Lord. Because they belong to him. They're the lamb's people, if you like. And the lamb's people, God's people are coming up throughout the book of Revelation. So those who deserve to be judged are forgiven because he is their Lord. They believed in him, just as Jesus said in John 3. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, won't be judged. And it's a devastating picture, isn't it? Does it mean eternal suffering forever? Some Christians, conservative evangelicals like ourselves, would say so. Would say, yes, that's their reading of the scripture. Other equally conservative, by that I mean people who take the, the Bible as the word of God, that's what an, oh, an evangelical is, and committed to the truth of the Bible, would say, well, does it definitely mean an ongoing forever? It talks about a second death for these people who are judged. Now, usually death is the end. You don't die and kind of carry on in some way. It's the end. And it's interesting, a few uh, verses earlier, the devil and other evil supernatural beings who are in the kind of dramatis personae of the book of Revelation um, are put in the same place. But the, the writer specifically says for them that they are put, uh, that, that their judgment their, that will go on forever and ever and ever. So for those kind of evil beings, the source of all the evil, there is a kind of uh, eternal kind of torment, is the word used. But it doesn't actually say that about um, human beings. And is it making a difference? But whether it's um, destruction or ongoing, some kind of ongoing existence, does it make that much difference? As I say, various conservative evangelists, John Stott, for example, a great um, evangelical leader, held more to that position, which is called annihilation. It's the idea that after the second judgment, then that's the end of people. That God doesn't keep people perpetually suffering and being punished forever and ever and ever. So it's, it's, it's not just kind of slightly dodgy evangelicals that take that position. I'll let you make your own mind up. People say, well, why can't love just make it okay? Why can't love win? Well, because it's about freedom. We go with our choices. There are consequences to the choices we make. And God treats us with the dignity of allowing the consequences of those choices. 
C.S. Lewis uh, made the point that, hey, if you don't want God in your life now, why would you want it then? You may not want that. Why would you want to be with God? What makes you think you're going to suddenly start loving him when all the time you could have freely loved him, you haven't wanted him in your life? Sorry, it's a bit harsh, but that's the kind of position. And if you look at the last battle, Mary reminded me of the the last battle. C.S. Lewis tried to kind of... Do you remember what happens? I understand because I've read it for a long, long time. So blame my wife if I've got this wrong. But what happens is people come to go into Aslan's land... They see Aslan, and some people think, wow, Aslan, you're here. I can go in. Other people see him and think, oh, I hate him. I'm terrified of him. He's horrible. And so there's that, there's a sense in which you kind of, these are, you know, tough things to get our heads around. The point is, now is the time to trust Jesus. Now is the time to see our sin for what it is, leading to death as a final judgment. Now is the time we can receive forgiveness and mercy. Because again, as C.S. Lewis points out, when the curtain comes down and the author comes onto the stage, it's the end of the play. Now I know maybe some of you are thinking, well, what about those people who don't know, who've not heard? We could talk about that in the Q&A maybe thing is, if you're listening to my voice, you have heard. Uh, we could say more about that. God is just and merciful. How could someone be condemned for not knowing? So what do they know? Maybe judgment is based on what they do know. And another question is, when can they know it? When in their human life do they have the capacity to know Another question that we don't really know the answers to. But let's move on because uh, we need to lift our heads up. Look at chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars... They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This section of uh, Revelation ends with a description of the new creation. And we see this renewed creation. What's happening in it? God is dwelling with people. We become what we're made for. 
There's a sense of intimacy with God. That picture, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now, we think about this. How do you wipe a tear from an eye in a handkerchief culture? If you haven't got a handkerchief, how do you wipe a tear from an eye? You, put, you have to put your hand. You, know, there's a, you, you, you can't do it without touching somebody's face with your hand and, the, and your thumb. What an amazing picture of the intimacy and closeness of God. We're shown that this is a kind of, um, there's a community with God. The promise of the, of the Old Testament come true in this new world. You can see that from the footnotes relating to Isaiah 65, Isaiah 25, and also Isaiah 66. There's a community with God, and there's a community without sin. That's what verses 8 and 9 are about. And then in verses 9 to 11, there's another change of scene. And we see now the bride, verse 9. I'm not going to read this because I have to stop, but it's all in the notes. You can read it for yourself. John is shown the city, and this city is God's people. The pictures keep changing. He repeats what has come at the end of every section of the group of the book. So we're shown more of this new life with God in chapter 21 uh, into chapter 22. And as you read the description, it's beautiful, it's prepared, it's full of God's presence. It's both a community and the place where God is with his people. It brings out, or it rather brings into itself, all the good things of human diversity. There's a wonderful bit about how, how all the glory of the nations kind of are expressed in this new community, this new life, this new world. So, so there's, there's, there's lots of things that to, to get very excited about, but I'm going to have to stop. But you can look at it in the notes and, and talk about it. If you do house group, well, uh, you may be at heartbeat. So anyway, time has gone. And then in chapter 22, verses 3 to 5, are this, is this amazing description of what life will be like then. It talks about there being uh, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Again, these are pictures. These are, you know, I don't know whether it's going to be exactly like this, but it's pointing to a new kind of way of living with God, of serving God. It says they will reign forever and ever. What does that mean? You can think about that. And you know what? You can be there. You can be part of that new life. If you know Jesus, you will be there. And that's the hope we have. And if we don't have that hope, we can turn to Jesus now while we can. And that life that's kind of hinted at there begins here. Because he comes into our life and gives us a little taste of what heaven is like or what this new life with him will be like what about how should we live we should be focused on the hope in ephesians 1 it says i pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you our spiritual eyes need to be opened we need to be focused and know that there's a hope it also says in romans 12 uh, can I have the next? It's not. Oh, thanks, Pete. We can be joyful and overflowing. Romans twelve verse twelve says, "Be joyful in hope." Romans fifteen says, "We can overflow with hope." 
So our lives need to be marked by hope, overflowing from within, because the Holy Spirit brings that hope into our experience. We need to live holy lives. 1 John 3 says, We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who hope, sorry, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So we live lives that are holy, and finally we stand firm. There's that great passage in 1 Corinthians 15, all about this new world. It talks about the, the, well, can I just, have I got time to just read this and then that's it? Sorry, I'm so sorry, I've gone over. But it's such an amazing passage. I want us to start, finish with this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That's, we won't all die. All be, there will be a, a point when Jesus returns and those believers alive won't die. We will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And then he goes on to say, Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. That's why we sin. That's why we die. Because we've sinned. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to dramatize it there. Therefore, my dear brothers, what? Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We can be in the Lord. We can be connected with him. The hope is not just about a hope forever, although it is that. We cross from death to life as soon as we become a believer in Jesus and start living with and for him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we may be people who overflow with hope to others. We pray that we may live lives that make it attractive, that people will want to know what we know. We pray that we will be those who Take every opportunity to to show people what you're like and what living with you is about. We pray that we may be holy. Lord, when we see what, what happens as a result of sin in terms of judgment, we're so thankful that we've been forgiven and we want to show that by living lives that are not sinful. But that we strive to put what we know to be wrong behind us and in your power be different. Lord, may we be people that are filled and overflowing with hope for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.